0: Alongside from Standard Club.
1: Hello and welcome to Alongside, the podcast series from Standard Club for the shipping industry across the world. I'm your host Chloe Tilly, and each episode we'll be looking at different topics and meeting special guests. This time, as the need to reduce carbon emissions becomes more urgent, our focus is on alternative fuels. Both our guests are joining us from Singapore. Nick Potter is Head of Shipping and Maritime for Shell in Asia Pacific and the Middle East. Hi there, Nick.
0: Hi there, Chloe.
1: And Seanac Rye is General Manager of Few LNG. Hi there, Seanac.
0: Hey, hey, Chloe.
1: Really good to have you both with us today. And before we begin, I mean, Nick, just give us an overview of your career. I mean, I understand nearly 20 years in leadership roles.
0: I'm a marine engineer by background, and I'm honoured enough to have uh, held a number of maritime-related roles globally in Europe, in the Americas and Asia. I was previously the Global Head of Maritime for BG Group and I'm currently Shell's Shipping and Maritime Head, as you mentioned, Asia-Pacific and and Middle East. Shell owns and controls about 2,000 ships, barges, marine vessels and floating assets on on a typical day. In the broader industry, I'm the Vice-Chairman of OCHIMPF, which is the oil company's International Marine Forum
1: now, Sean, tell us a little bit about Fuel LNG and, of course, your role there.
2: I'm heading Fuel LNG. It's a joint venture between Shell and Keppel, and it's engaged in LNG bunkering in Singapore and LNG fuel distribution here in Singapore's two industries. My background is I'm an ex-master mariner, used to sail on ships and then moved ashore, worked for AP Molo Musk in Copenhagen, managing their Musk LNG fleet. And later in Singapore, I was managing the LNG business development for Norgas carriers. For the last two, two and a half years, I've been managing fuel LNG.
1: Now, the International Maritime Organization has set ambitious decarbonisation targets. A 40% reduction in CO2 intensity in the global shipping fleet by 2030, increasing to 70% by 2050, that's compared to 2008 levels, and reducing total annual greenhouse gas emissions from international shipping by at least 50% by 2050. However, there are calls from across the industry to go further, with a clear trajectory to net zero emissions. Nick, I'm wondering, how important is the shipping industry's role in realising a net zero carbon future for the whole world?
0: It's critical. Our customers, society, and I think all of us, perhaps on this podcast, expect the shipping industry to play its part in a zero carbon future. And the majority of the world's governments have committed to the Paris Agreement. I believe that the majority of ship owners and managers feel a really strong responsibility to decarbonise. And so the reality is that shipping needs to find a, a pathway to decarbonisation and it needs to start now.
1: Well, Sean, take us through shipping's decarbonisation journey so far. What are the, the main technologies that are available, the new fuel options and indeed what's their impact?
2: The current fuels which are available and now what I'm saying is the fuel which are being used day to day, these days on ships. You can list them in your hand. The new op- fuel options include LNG, LPG. Methanol, biodiesel, and batteries. Yes, there is a lot of talk about ammonia as a fuel and hydrogen as a fuel. However, in the present day, there are close to zero ships which are actually using this fuel, especially in the global ocean trade. LNG has been available throughout the world in different places, and that has actually resulted in close to 500 ships now, being LNG-fueled or LNG-ready. Batteries have seen an immense growth in the last three to four years, However, because of the itself, it's first it's very expensive batteries themselves. And secondly, because of the weight to power ratio of the batteries, they're largely used in smaller ships or ships which are going within the local port or within the local area.
1: You're outlining there, that the number of new fuel options available. I'm wondering if I can get the thoughts from both of you on longer term, which of those new fuel options become more viable? Maybe, Nick, you could start
0: we have to consider the zero carbon fuels. And building on what Sonic has said, that currently boils down to hydrogen, ammonia and electrification. And I completely agree with with Sonic as a role for electrification, but it is more suited to short sea movements. If you then talk about hydrogen and ammonia, you can't not talk about those options without screening them against some of the critical criteria that will determine their success. The first one and most importantly safety. The safety risks with ammonia and hydrogen are more challenging when compared to today's conventional marine fuels. From our testing we've developed a fairly detailed understanding of how hydrogen's properties work and actually the work has demonstrated that the safety risks associated appear to be more manageable. When you look at ammonia the risks are high due to its lethal toxicity both to the health of our seafarers and to the environment. If you then talk about costs, any future fuel is going to require serious investment from the industry. But collaboration between energy companies, industry, infrastructure providers and OEMs, with those we can definitely create efficiencies and improve technologies. And the third area is obviously the emissions reduction potential when we consider the total emissions, hydrogen will enable greater emissions reductions than ammonia. You know, ultimately, green hydrogen is the building block for any of the future fuels that we talk about.
1: Let's talk about the biggest challenges in adopting new fuels as they come available, whether that's shipside or shore side. Nick, do you want to outline those for us?
0: Last year, we published a report called Shipping Decarbonisation, All Hands on Deck, where we interviewed more than 80 senior leaders across our industry. And some of the findings from that report included barriers where leaders felt there was a lack of customer demand and regulatory incentives to change. But the most frequently cited challenge was actually the lack of alignment on what fuel to use. 80% of the participants saw it as a major barrier to decarbonisation.
1: So in a sense, are you saying that ship owners don't know which technology to invest in because there's so many, and therefore they're not investing in anything. They're kind of waiting to see what everyone else does.
0: There is an element to that, and that's why I think that collaboration is needed sooner than later. And we're personally working with partners to develop uh, fuels and taking feedback and listening from our own customers and starting to develop and understand the technology and unlock some of the challenges. But equally critically, it's about also talking with the regulators around this, as well as talking with industry peers.
2: There are different challenges. We have been looking into ships which got converted into LNG fuel. There is sometimes the training, which becomes a lot of challenge in the end, the human in the end who is operating that machinery. He also needs to be convinced that he can use this safely. And that human factor in the end game is also very important. I remember one very interesting uh, story I used to we used to quote very funnily that uh, when coal ships came, the sailing ship captains did not like them at all. If you look at the history, there used to be races, where the, whether a coal steamer or a sail ship could take the first tea from China and bring it to England. And when you looked at and think that why were they so against, the master used to say that bringing an engineer on the ship, who can challenge his authority for something was not acceptable to him. So these are human beings in the end who are actually looking into this technology which we are bringing in.
1: Well, Sean, Nick, thank you. In a moment, we're going to look at how the shipping industry needs to work together to achieve the IMA's targets.
0: Alongside...
1: So, Shornak, how do you think the shipping industry can collaborate with others to achieve a greener future?
2: There are two ways where we can look into this collaboration. First, the decarbonisation itself is a global need of all energy users, whether they are at shore or at sea. And if you look at it, all the fuels which were used in shipping, the coal, the diesel, the fuel oil or the LNG, first were used ashore as power plants and then they were derived from there to sea. Another way to look at this collaboration is through technologies. If you look at a fuel, yes, using a fuel will reduce the carbon emissions of the ship. And then you can include it with other technologies. There have been testing going on for using sails. There's been a lot of research done on using bubbles around the ship, which can, you know, reduce the fuel oil consumption. They can be, the propellers can be more efficient. The hull paint can be made more efficient. So if all these technologies which are collaborated along with the fuel, the choice the fuel itself, it can bring up the decarbonization in a much efficient manner, much faster manner.
0: I agree your points, great points, uh, Sonak. We consider you can achieve 25% or so just in energy efficient technologies with some of the examples or all of the examples you talked about before. Add to that to the benefits of around uh, 21, 22% on the LNG reduction, and you can get um, close to the IMO's targets. And then if we consider fuel cells that can take agnostic types of fuels, we could start potentially putting LNG through fuel cells and then transition when hydrogen has been sufficiently commercially scaled to move to hydrogen. So there are ways where we can start to make choices already around the fuels that we use so that owners don't have to get caught in that wait and see mode.
1: So Nick, what are your views on collaboration and and how the shipping industry needs to collaborate, maybe specifically with organisations as well?
0: We need to work very closely with our own customers and partners leading the way in energy transition. And some of the examples of those partnerships that we're very actively involved in is We're increasing our partnerships across the technology and the value chain so that we can learn together and support the journey of our customers. We're also a founding member of the Sea Cargo Charter where we've committed to to come together with others to collect emissions data across all of the ships that we charter. And we'll be setting a standard reporting process and publishing the data every year. We're also stepping up our engagements directly with governments, industry groups, to further the decarbonisation agenda.
1: Shaunak, sure, like, do you think there are specific organisations that the shipping industry should be collaborating with?
2: Actually, and I'll change the word from should be to they are already collaborating. So if you look at uh, the agencies like OCIMF, SICTO, SGMF and looking into more agencies like European Union where they are setting up an agenda. On one hand, you have technology providers on one hand, you have oil majors, national oil companies, as well as international oil companies. And on other hands, you have regulators. And not to forget the most important part is the consumers, the users of the fuel, as well as the end customers of the products which we are using. And this whole collaboration has to be in one complete cycle to ensure that together we move towards a common goal of decarbonization.
1: So far, we've talked about the shipping industry as a whole, but Nick, I'm wondering if different types of vessels and trade routes are going to need to apply different approaches to alternative fuels.
0: Yes, we we do expect different parts of the industry to adopt certain solutions because they've got different needs and they've got differing constraints. Ferries, for example, may be most suitable for batteries. And we've just announced, in fact, the order of a fleet of fully electric ferries in Singapore. And we're using these to develop our understanding of the potential of batteries. For container ships, certainly on set routes, it could be that ammonia is the most suitable. But for international shipping, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, we've come to the view that hydrogen is likely to be the dominant fuel, with LNG playing a vital role in the interim so that we prevent cumulative emissions while hydrogen is being developed commercially and at scale
1: there's lots of different alternative fuels and different parts of the industry are potentially going to have to pick and choose. Companies, shipping industry, everybody's got to be relatively flexible in understanding they might invest in one area and actually that might not have a future.
0: I think the key is that we don't get in that situation and as I mentioned earlier, the importance of us all coming together and creating as much alignment as possible partly so that it creates that critical mass and economies of scale to drive the costs and the availabilities in our industry, but also so that as an industry we don't have the regrets that might come if we operated in isolation. And that's isolation within our industry and sector, but also isolation in terms of what other sectors are doing. It's important to understand what the power generation sector is doing, what aviation is doing, what road transportation is doing, so that we can maximise the logic and the synergies of the zero carbon fuels in the future.
1: Now, we're going to end on a positive note. We're going to be optimistic. We're going to imagine for a moment that we're in the year 2050. The IMO's goals have been successfully met. And I want to know from both of you, uh, maybe, Sean, you can begin on this. How did we get here?
2: I would say that, say, in 2021, we started with ships, as many as possible new builds were built on LNG fuel. And these ships, as the years went by, included more and more efficient technologies to reduce their emissions and increase their propulsion efficiency. And as they came near 2030, these ships started using a blend of LNG and bio-LNG to further reduce their emissions. Meanwhile, the fuel cell technology was being developed And it was developed to a manner that we now from 2030, we stopped ordering internet combustion engines and completely changed to fuel cell engines. And somewhere in the next four, five years, we found these fuels, which could be developed at a large scale at a low cost and using the same ships, the fuel cell ships, we stopped using LNG and changed over to this fuel. Little closer to 2038, 2040. Now that we have these big, fuel available we totally started developing fuel cell ships with only hydrogen or ammonia as fuel and today we are standing here in 2050 with ships which are 100% green with zero carbon emissions
1: Nick
0: I think it's a great question and of course we actually don't exactly know what the IMO's goals are going to be by 2050 but and by the way i hope to be long retired by then but that doesn't make <laughs> me and it doesn't make me any less accountable today for driving the journey my reflection back sitting in 2050 isn't necessarily how the fuels have evolved but perhaps the numbers of critical factors that i think need to be unlocked in order to be sitting here being successful and and i think there's a few i think regulations you know, We'll be sitting there and, and be clear that regulations were set that provided strong and stable incentives for the industry to decarbonise. I think IMO had set a, a really clear trajectory to net zero emissions and set some ambitious interim cargo intensity reduction targets. There had been a global market price set for carbon emissions. The proceeds from that were being used to fund research and development and pilots for new technologies and infrastructure. I think we would have seen very active public and private collaboration in research and development uh, for the fuels. And there would have been policies set to encourage the uptake of solutions that will have that immediate uptake and improvement on carbon. And we've talked about some of those like LNG and and biofuels and and in fact carbon offsets uh, to accelerate that journey. I think also that it would have been critical that the governments and and different industries had recognised both shipping and the other hard-to-abate sectors and joined the dots on the synergies necessary to develop renewable solutions at scale, whether it be power, hydrogen, biofuels. I think in kind of in final reflection, I think we'll be sitting here looking at, gosh, that was a challenging journey, but, but being incredibly proud of how we got there and recognizing the industry really stepped up on collaboration not just within ourselves but with the regulators and and other sectors and really being very successfully proud of the efforts that we've made to get us here.
1: It's been a really interesting conversation thank you both so much for your thoughts on this really important topic. Nick thank you for joining us.
0: You're welcome thank you very much for having me.
1: Absolute pleasure and Sean Ack as well thank you for your time.
0: Thank you Chloe thank you it was a pleasure.
1: Now, do join us next time when we'll continue to discuss the shipping industry with our expert guests. And of course, you can subscribe to this series so you won't miss an episode. From me, Chloe Tilly, Nick Potter and Sean Rye. it's thanks for listening and goodbye.
0: Alongside from Standard Club, back
2: soon.